0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number five, Leviticus chapter 3. We're going to continue our study of Leviticus tonight, and we've looked now at two types of burnt offerings that is, two types of sacrifices that were placed onto the brazen altar, consumed to ashes by fire. And those two were the olah and the mincha. The olah involved the burning up of animals. The mincha, burning up of plant life, grains. And I've emphasized that despite all the attempts to explain the purposes and essences of these offerings, That the Bible at this point of our study makes it clear that it was the smoke from these sacrifices that was a primary element and that the smoke was a very pleasing aroma to God. Now the question is, how are we modern Christians to take this? You Are know, we to believe that Jehovah literally inhaled the smoke and loved how it smelled and this was the purpose of burning up animals and plants? Well, in the minds of the Hebrews of that day certainly was a major reason for the ritual. Now, of course, this causes us some concern, doesn't it? Because immediately a mental picture uh, comes to our minds of pagans sacrificing to their gods. And the pagan gods ate food and drank wine and beer, they had sex orgies, they partied, they fought among themselves, they murdered one another. All right, and more. So it would be a little easier to swallow if the several references to God smelling that fragrant aroma of the smoke from the burnt offerings in Leviticus chapters one and two were speaking of pagan rituals made to pagan gods, but they're not. They're speaking of Jehovah, the God of Israel, and these are his words. The sacrificial rituals of Leviticus have always created a problem for the church. And allegorizing it away has generally solved the problem. Now to begin to deal with this issue, though, deal with it head on, here's what we have to understand. All religions came from essentially one source. Therefore, there are many similarities between the myriad of religions practiced around the world. From Christianity to Judaism to Hinduism to Buddhism, all the rest of the isms. And without taking up too much time, let me flesh this out just a little. No more than about five years ago, the World's Academy of Linguists, that's academics who study languages came to a conclusion they've been desperately trying to avoid for decades. And it is that all evidence indisputably pointed towards the existence at one time of a single mother language. Okay? In other words, it is now irrefutable among the science of linguistics that all languages sprang from one. Long ago, there was but a single universal language, but over time, it somehow changed into many, and it appeared to happen, according to them, almost overnight. Now, this isn't really startling to any child who's ever attended Sunday school or been taught Torah, because how and approximately when that transformation took place of one single language into a many is told in the Bible. It happened at the Tower of Babel, and it was Jehovah who caused it to happen, both as a judgment for rebellion and in order that people would disperse and repopulate the world more completely. But from that same incident, something else of a profound importance happened. The perverted worship that was occurring at the Tower of Babel, was led by Nimrod, also changed and multiplied and followed all those dispersed people who now spoke different languages to wherever it is they went. And the Bible calls this evil cauldron of the many pagan religions that resulted from this and had their origin in Babel, the Babylon mystery religions. For all practical purposes, all false religions, which by definition are any who do not solely call on the name of the God of Israel, are Babylon mystery religions, and they all have very similar characteristics. Now, after the flood, the entire world's population consisted only of Noah's immediate family. And the family knew Jehovah pretty well. Right? They were dedicated to him. They knew who he was, what he expected of what was left of mankind. And they knew that he wanted sacrifices to be accomplished for a variety of reasons. And they had a pretty good handle on God's program. All of Noah's family believed and practiced the one and only pure worship of the one and only true God. Eventually, though, in fairly short order, Noah's descendants started to go their separate ways. Okay? And as they did, they began to add their own thoughts and their own desires that sprang from their sinful human nature. Okay? That corrupted the proper worship of Jehovah. By the time of Nimrod, Nimrod Mankind was once again thoroughly corrupt, as was their worship. And by the time of Nimrod, they began worshiping false gods, non-gods, just like before the flood. Yet due to mankind's common point of origin, each of the world's new religions took with them this common memory of the essential doctrines of the true God who had created them. But they modified and they twisted meanings and and practices. And when you study them closely, the world's false religions are far more similar than they are unique. They all pretty much look alike. It's primarily just cultural issues and traditions and names of the various gods that separate them. That is why we find so much commonality among the world's false religions. For instance, almost all of them have a flood story that goes back to their beginning. Why? Because there was a flood. And because all the world's cultures and people came from the family who survived that flood. Noah. Most have a god hierarchy that consists of a chief supreme god, usually a male, right, his wife, and then their son. Why? Because God's plan of having his son come into the world by means of a woman was known from the earliest days. Almost all pagan religions have their chief deity's son dying, and then being reincarnated For that reason, almost all pagan religions insist there was a creation of all things caused by a god or a goddess because, of course, that indeed is how it was. And these same religions also insist there will be a definite end to the world as we know it, initiated by a god, because indeed that is how it will be. Almost all pagan religions have holy books. They speak of an eternal God that is self-existent. They speak of a realm of spirit beings, some evil, some good. Almost all pagan religions perform sacrifices to a god or gods. And usually it involves these sacrifices being burned up by fire on an altar with the smoke rising up to their gods who either live in... Or just above the clouds. The point I'm getting at is that many elements of the worship practices of the Israelite religion that were being laid out by Yehovah were similar to pagan worship practices already in existence in that era because almost all elements of pagan worship practices were simply highly corrupted versions of the original and true worship of the Father. What we see God doing with Moses, with Israel and the law, is reestablishing his justice and his worship system. He's cleaning things up. He's reestablishing proper and true worship and doctrine just as he cleaned things up by destroying the entire world's population with a great flood and starting over with a remnant. Noah. Now... Let me attempt an admittedly inadequate illustration of this. I don't know if anybody here is into refinishing furniture. Now, I don't particularly enjoy it, but I've done it. You can find, if you look, the most horrible-looking desk or chair or table with layers and layers of paint and dirt and goo that have been added to it over the years. You know, but with some work and some chemical stripper, it is possible to remove all that accumulated stuff that never belonged there, and underneath it all, rediscover a beautiful, natural, original wooden surface. That piece of furniture that looked like junk gets restored from all of its ugliness to its original state and its purpose. But you know what? It's still that same piece of furniture. Okay. That's what God was doing with Israel and the law. Removing all the stuff that didn't belong there. And bringing a remnant of humanity back into a condition that was closer to the way he'd made us. All the stuff that had no place And proper worship of the one true Almighty God was being stripped away and discarded. We find in the Holy Scriptures that it is standard operating procedure for God to take people and cultures just as they are and then use common elements of that culture that those people are completely familiar with as learning tools. And as illustrations of his grand plan. The Hebrews, in the time of Moses, pictured God in much the same way as everyone on earth pictured their gods and goddesses. As some kind of a superhuman. Okay? They weren't entirely correct, but that is how they thought of him. And i got news for you. A lot of modern Christians kind of see God that same way. Right? Just some kind of a Very old superhuman. He was a God who, in the minds of Hebrews, could speak. He could walk. He could jump with joy. He could swing a sword. And yes, of course, smell that fragrant aroma of incense and the smoke of the burnt offerings. It takes a long time in human terms for men to adopt real change. God has spent millennia bringing man from the birth of our existence in Adam and Eve to where we are today. And along the way, the Lord has used familiar surroundings and practices, even in our everyday human characteristics and world of foibles, to teach us the truth. And he has progressively shown us more and more of him, more and more of his plans... One understanding building on another, as time has marched on. His principles and purposes are perfect, they've never changed, but they have transformed over the centuries. From the sacrifice of animals and grains to achieve peace with God, it transformed to the sacrifice of Christ. What righteousness consisted of transformed... From personal obedience and good behavior to being in union with the one in whom we place our faith. Okay. What I want you to take from this is this. and our study of Leviticus and the sacrifices and the instated implied reasons we're going to read and learn about for those sacrifices, don't have worry and anxiety overtaking the word of God literally even though at times it kind of bothers our modern minds and seems to attack our sensibilities especially in the older books of the Bible too many of our great Christian leaders and teachers have decided that the flock is just unable to handle some of these realities of Bible history and so they tell us That what we're reading is not really what we're reading. That it means something else entirely. They're afraid we might lose faith. If we see too much paganism and imperfection all tangled up in our faith roots and in our Bible heroes, well, that's nonsense. The Bible is simply the truth. And the truth is that Abraham was first a pagan. The truth is that the Hebrews were constantly struggling with idolatry and with disobedience. It is truth that many of the worship practices of the Hebrews, as ordained by God and passed on to we believers, were similar in outward appearance to pagan worship practices that far predated the time of Moses. So in the matter of the smoke, which is what set me off on this tangent in the first place, Yes, the Hebrews did envision God inhaling the smoke and being pleased with its smell. Their real problem is that they just thought of the ritual sacrificial uh, sacrificial processes in a thoroughly physical, earthly sense. Because that, in general, is how they viewed God instead of the spiritual heavenly sense that would slowly be revealed and taught to man as we became able to embrace it. And, of course, it's that spiritual sense that Yeshua will spend so much time explaining when he comes. Let's uh, read Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, then if he offers before Adonai an animal from the herd, then no matter whether it is a male or a female, it must be without defect. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron, the Kohanim, the priests, are to splash the blood against all the sides of the altar. He is to present the sacrifice of the peace offering As an offering made by fire, to Adonai, is to consist of the fat covering the inner organs, and all the fat above the inner organs, the two kidneys, the fat on them near the flanks, and the covering of the liver, which he will remove from the kidneys. Aaron's sons will make it go up in smoke on the altar, on top of of the burnt offering, which is on the wood of the fire. It is an offering made by fire. It's a fragrant aroma for Adonai. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai is from the flock, then when he offers it, no matter whether it's male or female, it must be without defect. If he brings a lamb for his offering, then he's to present it before Adonai. He's to lay his hand on the head of his offering and then slaughter it at the entrance to the Tent of Meeting, and the sons of Aaron are to splash its blood against all sides of the altar. From the sacrifices made as peace offerings, he is to present Adonai with an offering made by fire. It is to consist of its fat, the entire fat tail, which he will remove close to the lower backbone, the fat covering the inner organs, all the fat above the inner organs, the two kidneys, the fat on them near the flanks, and the covering of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. The Kohen, priest, will make it go up and smoke on the altar. It is food, an offering made by fire to Adonai. If his offering is a goat, then he's to present it before Adonai. He's to lay his hand on its head and then slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aharon are to splash its blood against all sides of the altar, and he is to present from it his offering, an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is to consist of the fat covering the inner organs, and all the fat above the inner organs, the two kidneys, the fat on them near the flanks, and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys." The priest will make them go up and smoke on the altar. It is food, an offering made by fire, to be a fragrant aroma. All the fat belongs to Adonai. It is to be a permanent regulation through all your generations, wherever you live, that you will eat neither fat nor blood. Well, here we encounter a third type of sacrifice usually translated into the words English words peace offering and what we should take notice of is that just like the first two kinds the sacrifices we looked at the olah and the mecha this one as well has nothing to do with atoning for sins okay that is this is another offering to god that does not deal with direct trespasses against him or the commission of bad behaviors, sins. Now, in Hebrew, this offering is called the Zavah Shlamim. Okay, Or more often, we'll find in the Bible, we'll just abbreviate it and call it the Zavah. Okay. And not all scholars would translate these words to mean peace offering. Some of your Bibles will translate it as the offering of well-being or the offering of fellowship. And another more recent interpretation is the sacred gift of greeting. Why the problem translating this simple phrase, Seva Shlamim? Well, the root word of Shlamim, and remember, Hebrew is a language that operates by establishing a root word and then establishes many variances and then it has nuances that are created from that root word the root word shalamim, is the same word from what we from where we get that familiar hebrew greeting shalom okay and although most gentiles don't realize it shalom has a much Broader and deeper meaning than hello or how you doing. Shalom carries with it the idea of a very gracious greeting. Of wishing someone to be at peace. Of expressing well-being. It's an offering of brotherly fellowship. All at the same time. So, none of these renderings of zavah shlamim that I've put forward are wrong. It's just that none of them by themselves is fully adequate to cover the name and the meaning of the sacrifice. So this is the sacrifice, this zavah shlamim, is kind of a greeting, gift, fellowship, well-being, peace offering to, to Jehovah. Again, notice, this is not about dealing with some sin or another. That a worshiper is committed. For the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to call this particular sacrifice the peace offering. So we all know what we're talking about here as we go through. Now this peace offering, Le- Leviticus chapter 3, introduces us to a whole new class of offerings. The Zavah. Now the Zavah, <coughs> pardon me. is actually a somewhat lower class of offering than either the olah or the mincha. And this is reflected in the fact that in the olah and the mincha, only the priests were permitted to use or benefit any part from that sacrificial offering. In the olah, the priests could keep the animal skin. And the minka, the priests, could keep the bulk of the grain offering as their own personal food. In fact, the priests were required to eat that food within the courtyard of the tabernacle because it was considered a sacred meal. The seva, the peace offering class of sacrifice, was also considered a sacred meal. But this sacred meal could be shared with the layman a worshiper, a non-priest. Therefore, since a layman could participate of this, it was deemed a slightly less sacred than the first two. Now, there are several similarities between the Zeva, peace offering, and the Ola, what's usually called the burnt offering. Now, notice, for instance, because I tried to emphasize it, this practice of laying hands, Semecha, as it's called in Hebrew, on the designated sacrificial animal. It's called for in both cases. Remember that Semecha involved some sort of symbolic transference of guilt from the worshiper to the animal. The semachah also was used to indicate that this particular animal was designated by the worshiper as his sacrifice and that now he's making it God's property. Further, as with the olah, the peace offering, the Seva shlamim, involves only animals. It does not involve plant life. It does involve grains. And these animals offered must be burned up on the brazen altar. Yet, there are differences between the Zevah and the Olah, because only certain parts of the animal, very specific parts, are to be burned up in this peace offering. And the kinds of animals that may be sacrificed for a zevah cannot include birds that could have been sacrificed as an Olah. Further, as we're going to find out in later chapters, the highest level of perfection of the sacrificial animal is not nearly as stringent in some types of the Zeva, but of course, no sacrifice can ever be a poor specimen. And of course, key to the peace offering is that the worship worshiper, layman, non-priests, can partake in the meat that is set aside and not burned up on the altar. Another key difference is that female animals can be used for peace offerings as well as male animals. Now, for the zavah, the peace offering, cattle, sheep, and goats can be used. And after being slaughtered, it is the fat from the animal that surrounds the liver, the kidneys, and the entrails that's burned on the altar. Now, this particular kind of sacrificial fat is called in Hebrew, chalef, right? And this type of animal fat is not to be consumed by Israelites any more than the blood from an animal is to be consumed. However, an animal's body does contain another and different kind of fat. It contains a, a layer of fat just under the skin, And it adheres to a few other places of the animal's flesh. That kind of fat can't be used for a sacrifice. Only fat that covers certain inner organs. (coughs) Now here in verse 5 we run into the problem that I spent the first few minutes of our lesson discussing. The one that kind of hurts our sensibilities and messes up messes with our minds a little bit. We're told that the peace offering is turned into smoke, which is a pleasing aroma to God. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but notice that it clearly states that the purpose of burning up the meat is so that it produces smoke, then the smoke carries with it the odor that's meant to satisfy God. Now, we're next told that if a sheep is the offering, of a peace offering, then in addition to the fat that surrounds those specified internal organs, the fat extracted from the sheep's tail is to be used. Now, this does not include the tail from every kind of sheep, interestingly. There was a special variety of sheep... That was greatly favored by the Hebrews, as well as other Middle Eastern cultures in that area, and it was appropriately called the fat-tailed sheep. It was the fat from the tail from that species that was being called for. Then in verse 12, a goat is named as an authorized peace offering. Now, this surprises people sometimes, because they think that in the New Testament, when the returning Messiah speaks of separating the goats from the sheep, That somehow or another, goats must be in all circumstances something that symbolizes uncleanness or evil. In fact, goats were prime sacrificial animals. As they were generally hardier, they were more prolific than sheep. They were perfectly acceptable sacrifices. Yet they did hold a very slightly lower status than sheep. And at times, like in the separation from the goats from the sheep, They are considered negative. Like leavening, yeast in food, which can be both positive and negative depending on its use. Goats can also be seen in the Bible to at times be positive, to at times be negative. Now, verse 17 gives us some very important information. First, it tells us This is a law regarding the Halev. The acceptable kind of sacrificial animal fat. And it also concerns animal blood. Second, it gives us the statute of limitations on this law. That is, just how long this law is to be in effect. And it states it's forever. And third, it explains where this law is to be in effect. Basically, the where is anywhere the Hebrew resides. It goes without further comment that this includes the tabernacle. In other words, so far in Leviticus, the instructions given have had to do with what happens only at the tabernacle. Now, the aspect concerning the eating of fat and blood is extended to everywhere Hebrews settled. Wherever they are, they can only eat certain types of fat and all bloods to be avoided. So, what's the purpose of the peace offering? Beyond, of course, emitting that all-important fragrant smoke. Well, Leviticus 7, which we'll get into in a few weeks, I'm going to give you a glimpse of it, gives us three reasons The peace offering should be brought before the Lord. First, it's to be used as a confession offering. Second, as a free will offering. And third, as a vow offering. Now, what we see is that the peace offering, the Seba, was a sacrificial offering that was used on special occasions. It was not a regular daily happening like the olah and the Minka. The zavah was at the discretion of the worshiper. Now, we've already discussed that the zavah is kind of a gift of greeting to the Lord, a gift of peace, and it's a plea to the Lord for well-being. It was also a request for fellowship with the Father, which ties in with the olah and the Minka. That is, all of the first three sacrifices we've studied now, are for the purpose of maintaining a peaceful relationship with God. To demonstrate obedience and loyalty to Him, and to gain personal acceptance by Him. Now, It also demonstrates that the worshiper recognizes that it is this personal acceptance by God that gives the worshiper shalom, peace and well-being. Now, let me put this in perspective. And this is an awfully easy point to lose track of. All of these sacrifices, all of these rituals, and all of the laws that we're going to study are only meant for redeemed people. None of these sacrifices... None of these rituals, not the following of the law, brought them redemption. Rather, it was that God first redeemed Israel, then he gave them his laws and rituals needed for those redeemed people to repair and maintain their relationship with God. It was no different for the people of Torah, than it is for believers today. Just as Moses' flock didn't perform sacrifices to obtain redemption, it had been a free gift from God, so it is with us that God gives us redemption as a free gift through Messiah, and then goes about explaining to us how to maintain and keep that right relationship with him. I was at a church in Castleberry, Florida sometime back for a special function. And at dinner well there was a dinner put on by the church and a young boy only about 10 years old was called on to say grace for the whole group. And his prayer was short and profound. After thanking God for our meal, he said, God, make me obedient so that I can live a good life. That is probably the best summation for the meaning of the peace offering that anybody could ever offer. Make me obedient so that I can live a good life. Now let's take a look at each of the three occasions for the giving of the peace offering the zebah, the first occasion the confession offering was used when the worshipper sought God for deliverance from his enemies or maybe for deliverance from sickness okay. since some unknown sin was often seen as the cause for oppression from an enemy, or for becoming ill, it was logical that confession was necessary if he thought that was maybe the reason for his predicament. Now it goes without saying that these sins would have been of an unknown, unintentional variety, because they were certainly unknown to the worshiper, but in reality, this was really more about seeking God's mercy upon the sinful condition of the worshiper. Not something he had necessarily done. Okay. Acts of misbehavior were going to be dealt with by means of other sacrifices which we've yet to study. Now, to get an example of the practical use Of a peace offering in Israelite life. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20. And I'm going to read... Verses 24 through 28, and then jump over to chapter 21, 1 through 4. Judges 20, verse 24. So the army of Israel went out to attack the army of Benjamin Benjamin, the second day. But Benjamin went out against them from Givah the second day and slaughtered the army of Israel. 18,000 men with swords fell. Then the whole army of Israel, all the people, went up to Bethel and cried and sat there in the presence of Adonai. They fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to Adonai and asked him what to do. The ark for the covenant of Adonai was there at that time. And Pincus, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it at that time. And they asked Should we still go out to battle again against our kinsmen, the people of Benjamin? Or should we stop? And the Lord answered, Attack, because tomorrow I'm going to hand them over to you. Now move over to chapter 21. The men of Israel had sworn in Mitzpah that none of them would let his daughter marry a man from Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and stayed there before God till evening, crying out and weeping. And they said, Adonai! Why has this come about in Israel? Why should there be today in Israel one tribe missing? The next day the people got up early, they built an altar, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So in the, in these two cases, the Israelites were perplexed by what was happening to them. So first they offered an olah, which is designed to get God's attention and favor. And next, the peace offering as a, for lack of a better word, a confession offering, a confession of their sinful condition and their unworthiness. Now let's look at a second and different type of peace offering called the vow offering. Now, it was typical in that day to make a vow to God that if he helped you out of some kind of a problem or would show you his mercy for some kind of special needs you had, you'd pledge to do something for God in return. Okay? When that pledge, that vow to God, was fulfilled, then it would be capped off with a ceremony that included a zavah, a peace offering. Now, the essence of this kind... Of Zabah, this, this kind of vow offering, is illustrated well in the story of Jacob fleeing his brother Esau after he tricked him and obtained the firstborn birthright from their father Isaac that rightly, by tradition, belonged to Esau. Now we're going to go back to Genesis and read this. Now, keep in mind, one of the reasons I'm showing you this this was before the law was given. I told you that these practices, the knowledge of this, came way before. What was God doing with the law and with Israel? He's cleaning it all up. You with me? Okay. This thing we're about to read with Jacob happened hundreds of years before the law was given. Okay, let's turn your Bibles to Genesis. Um, well, two places. Genesis 28 and then Genesis 35 start with Genesis 28 and I'm going to read verses 16 through 22 and then jump to Genesis 35 I'm going to read a few sets of verses there Jacob woke from his sleep and said truly Adonai is in this place and I didn't know it then he became afraid and said this place is fearsome this has to be the house of God this is the gate of heaven Yaakov got up early in the morning, Jacob, took the stone he had put under his head, set it up as a standing stone, and named the place Bethel, House of God. But the town had originally been called Luz. Uh, Yaakov, rather, Jacob, took this vow. Vow. With me? If God will be with me, and will guard me on this road that I'm traveling, giving me bread to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return to my father's house in peace. For that, I will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a standing stone will be God's house. And of everything you give me, I will faithfully return one tenth to you. Now move on over to chapter 35. And we're going to read 1 through 4, and then 13 through 15. God said to Jacob, "Get up." Go up to Bethel and live there and make there an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled to Esau, your brother. Then ya- uh, Yaakov said to his household and all the others with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Purify yourselves. Put on fresh clothes. We're going to move on and go up to Bethel. There I will build an altar to God who answered me when I was in such distress and stayed with me wherever I went. Then Jacob Then they gave Jacob all the foreign gods in their possession and the earrings they were wearing and Jacob buried them under the pistachio tree near Shechem. Moving on to verse 13. Then God went up from him there where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a standing stone in the place where he had spoken with him, a stone pillar. He poured out a drink offering on it, poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God spoke with him, Fadal. Now, if you'll recall The principle, the the, the principle, uh, rather the beginning of our lesson today, I explained that God had long ago put all these principles into practice. Okay? Well, before Moses and the law. And that they had become degraded and corrupted to varying degrees by the hundreds and hundreds of cultures now in existence. Here we have Jacob, five centuries before Moses was given the law, performing a Zavah type of offering all the elements of the Zephah, the peace offering, were present here. The standing stone Jacob erected is in Hebrew, masabah, right, which can indicate a pillar of some kind used as a marker, or it was a very primitive kind of altar. Now, obviously, since Jacob is using it as a place of offering to Jehovah, it was an altar. And the story shows how the vow made by Jacob, if you'll help me, then I'll make you my God. Okay. And then many years later, when Jacob had fulfilled his vow, by making Jehovah his God, he erects a matzabah again, sacrifices oil to God on it as the vow offering. That's how a vow offering works. Pardon me. The vow offering prescribed in such detail to Moses in Leviticus 3 was given five centuries after this incident, and even though the principles and the essence of the vow offering is the same, God has refined it and defined it further since the time of Jacob, when Jacob simply did what was customary for that era in his region. When Jacob set up that standing stone, that altar, made a vow and offered a sacrifice of, of oil, he wasn't, by the way, ad-libbing. He wasn't making it up as he went along. Okay? What he did was known to him. Lots of people did it. Okay? Now, this third kind of peace offering is called a free will offering. And it was quite different from the vow offering from the confession offering, kinds of peace offerings, in that with the free will offering, the worshiper was not seeking something from God. Rather, this was simply a spontaneous expression of gratitude. All three types of peace offerings ended with a sacred meal typically involving both the worshiper and the priest. All three types of peace offerings were, in general, joyous in nature, although the free will offering was the most joyous. Unless we think that the use by Hebrews of the typical, even pagan-like, cultural, religious expressions of that era even went so far as to imply that when the Israelites were enjoying their sacred meal in God's presence... that that indeed God too was enjoying a meal with them. He was eating food. We have only to look at Psalm 50, verses 12 and 13. It says this, and this is God speaking, by the way. God says to Israel, You know, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For all the world and all that's in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? What we should take from this psalm is that first, the pagan mindset of Hebrews, even in the era of David, which is 300 years after Moses, at times must still have actually viewed God as eating food. For God wouldn't have taken the time to scold him about it. They still envision God in the cultural way that all Middle Easterners typically did of all their gods, as kinds of superhumans with all sorts of physical human-like qualities and needs. And second, God was making it quite clear that he does not have human-like needs, and no, he doesn't need to eat or drink. Therefore, the ultimate meaning of his instructions, such as here in Leviticus, whereby it speaks of the smoke, being a lovely fragrance to God's nostrils, is not physical, it's spiritual and symbolic in its meaning. God doesn't have nostrils. Nor does he smell the smoke the way we humans might think of it. All of the scores, perhaps hundreds of times in the Bible that we're told about God weeping shouting brandishing a sword running after somebody are all figurative. Okay? Yet if Jehovah is going to communicate with us he's always going to have to dumb it down. <laughs> right? He's going to have to use terms that a man can identify with and understand. All right? I mean, One final thing and we'll call it quits for the night we're not going to find the term peace offering or seva in the New Testament primarily because the only manuscripts we have are in Greek not Hebrew because "zevah" is a Hebrew concept there is no equivalent Greek word However, we have obvious references in the New Testament to various forms of the Zavah sacrifices. Usually, all the terms for the many different kinds of sacrifices we're in the midst of learning about are lumped into one all-encompassing word in the Greek New Testament. Sacrifice. But the various types of sacrifices are still completely identifiable in the New Testament, simply due to their occasions and their procedures. For instance, in Acts, when Paul, we're told, paid for the offerings of the four men who had taken the vow of the Nazarite, okay, what he was paying for was the sacrificial animals necessary to perform the Zeva, the vow offering type of peace offering. When we're done studying Leviticus, I think as you read the New Testament from here on out, you're going to start finding yourself recognizing all the various kinds of sacrifices that we're reading about here. And I think we'll call it a night at this spot.